It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. What do we have on tap? Well, only way to find that out, you have to tune in. You have to grab your ticket, get on board, put your seatbelt on. Most importantly, enjoy the ride. That's right. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and your conductor, Anthony Smith. And we are getting ready to get this train on the track. So let's get rolling. train sports talk podcast with your host and conductor anthony smith grab your tickets get on board and enjoy the ride it's the a train sports talk podcast all aboard Welcome into the A Train Sports Talk Podcast. This is your host and your conductor, Anthony Smith. Today I am elated because I have a special guest coming on today. This guest has made his mark in the city of Wichita, mainly on the campus of Wichita State University. Thirty-five years, he made his mark, and the proof was in the pudding. Literally, the proof was there. He was head and strength conditioning coach there, fresh out of a graduate from college, I believe. And we're going to bring him on the show today. And I am very elated to have the show. Because he is, to me, he is everything Wichita State. We have a young man who, like I said, he's left his mark on a Wichita State program and has literally transformed bodies. I'm talking about none other than strength conditioning coach who, after 35 years, literally, pardon the pun, shocked the world when he decided to step down. Kerry Rosenboom. <laughs> Welcome aboard the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. How you doing today, sir? I'm good, Anthony. How are you? And I, I sure appreciate you having me on today. I appreciate you being on. This is, I've been trying to work this out and caught up with you. First, I had to track you down on Facebook because I want to know about <laughs> Kerry Rosenboom, the man, not the myth, but the legend. And According to what I was seeing here, you got your start as a 23-year-old, if I'm correct, and on an interim basis, and you pretty much left your mark on two coaches, one being Gene Stevenson and the other one being Eddie Fogler. And I have to ask this question because there's two guys in particular, one being Jamie Arnold, another guy being Claudius Johnson. 
I would have to say those had to be your prized pupils because when they came in, they were about as skinny as a toothpick, as I recall. And from their freshman to sophomore year, when they came back, they were built like a tank. What is it that you do? Well, I I had the luxury of working with two guys that would do anything and everything you ask. And 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 Claudius Johnson, when you look at Claudius, you look at a lower or a person that I told him when he uh, left Wichita State, I said, you know, he he thanked from thanked me for what I did and everything. And and I said, I said, really, the one you need to thank is getting on your knees at night thanking the Lord because He gave you genetics that were incredible. And and Jamie Arnold, you know, you you look at when we signed Jamie, he was you know a shorter guard and came in with great guard skills. And I still think Jamie to this day is undoubtedly one of the best players to ever come through the program. I know there was some hiccups here and there during his career, but so skilled, such a great basketball IQ, could do so many things. And but to be honest, the best part um, with both of them are the type of people they were. They just would do whatever you asked. They were great with the fans. They understood that Wichita is a special place and, and they interacted well and, and they, they both just loved their time here. And, but I was fortunate. Um, I just finished um, my college baseball career at Kansas Newman. At that time it was uh, Kansas Newman College, now Newman University. And they just dropped football at Wichita State, and I came over to the uh, weight room trying to see if I could become a graduate assistant because it was something I started really getting into during my baseball time at Newman and found out their strength coach had just left. I think uh, Henry Soroka left in New Mexico State, if I'm correct, and they um, offered me the position on an interim basis, which I was so unqualified for. Um, it, it's just really being at the right place at the right time. But luckily, Coach Stevenson knew I had a baseball background, liked what I did. And Coach Fogler, um, he he's somebody the same way. He gave me the freedom to do the things I thought. And I was lucky enough to have the Prelo twins. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, the one Joker, John Cooper. I mean, just some great people that, didn't care if I was 23 or 43 they just worked hard and so in the process I got coach Fogler's um, consent and uh, you know it was just 35 years of being being in Wichita which I I thank the Lord for every day because this is my family I went from St. Francis to Bishop Carroll to Newman and um, then to Wichita State as as uh, an employee and I'm just I'm thankful that the Lord was able to keep me here and having the biggest thing was having my children around around their grandparents because that time can never be long enough and so that was that was my number one reason for being here 35 and i thought it would be more years but i'm blessed what it was absolutely and that being said like i said and i i always have to keep saying pardon the pun because this became a moniker during their final four run but it had to be a world shocking event when news came out that Kerry Rosenboom stepped down after 35 years, especially by this being the only job that you knew. So tell me, <laughs> yeah. tell me something. Now you played baseball yourself, right? And yes, sir. you, you went through the channels. You went through St. Francis, Bishop Carroll, and everybody know anybody on the West side of Wichita know that's like a channel. You go if you go into St. Francis, you go to Bishop Carroll. 
then you end up going to Newman. You said it was Kansas Newman College, right? Yeah. So yes. prior to you getting into strength and conditioning, what was your playing career like? Because maybe a lot of us, all we know is Kerry Rosenboom, the head in strength and conditioning for 35 years. But what was your playing career like? Well, I was uh, a player that, you know, used strength and conditioning uh, in my career to better myself. I, I was – um, an average pitcher that got a great opportunity under uh, legendary coach Paul Sanagorski. And, and I, I was known for my work ethic and I ended up winning most improved player one year as a pitcher. And, but, but to be honest, like I tell my son who followed me there, um, he was much more talented than I was. But the one thing I learned when I left Newman and came to WSU and saw so many great players is one is I, the experience I had at a smaller college can't be replaced because some players were so stressed. Am I going to play? Am I not going to play? And they didn't enjoy the college experience as much as I think I did. And I was just fortunate enough to be around a great group of people that I still have a lot of friends today. And, um, you know, I had some great memories. I, I, um, you know, but, but to this day, the, the biggest thing is, Newman is what helped me get into strength conditioning, and and so I'll always be grateful for Paul Sandogorski and Pat Thomas, who are instructors and coaches there, that that helped me learn more about strength conditioning. And this could be a job because I'm probably one of the few strength conditioning coaches in the country that had a degree in business administration. So um, I'm just uh, fortunate enough to be around a lot of good people and a lot of good athletes that. Uh, to work hard and made me a lot better than I was. Absolutely. Once again, I have Kerry Rosenboom on the A Train Sports Talk podcast. So, your career 35 years, one job. So, how did the process walk me through the process of the get, getting on as the interim and then carving out the path that you carved? Because I heard that you had numerous opportunities to go elsewhere way before the 35 year came to an end. So what were some of the opportunities that came your way while you was at Wichita state that you turned well, down, literally turned down? Well, it was, um, some, some offers that, uh, I'm very, still very thankful for this day. My first one was, I think I was 27 with the Milwaukee Brewers and, um, you know, I flew out the county stadium, the old county stadium. I met with Bud Seeley, who was the owner of the Brewers, now then the commissioner of baseball. And, and um, it was an incredible offer. But uh, a year previous to that, my wife had had a miscarriage. And um, so when I went out to Milwaukee, she was pregnant with uh, what would be our first child at about six months. And and she's very family oriented like myself. And so I could tell she was stra straining about the move, but trying to be very supportive. And to me, it just wasn't a good time um, to move. I wanted a family was much more important to me. And then um, over the years, I had um, eight other major league offers, um, Kansas City Royals, um, which they just called and offered it to me. Um, they had a lot of people coming to watch our workouts and get a feel for what we did with our baseball players. The last one in baseball was with the Texas Rangers after they had uh, opened the ballpark in Arlington, which was a, a neat, neat scenario. Um, 
but there's always something family-wise that came up that this just isn't isn't right for me and you know there was i probably had in power five teams i uh, i would guess 30 to 40 offers um but it was more of the calling me we're going to make a move do you want to would you be interested in uh coming over and so it never got out that i got this offer that offer and that was fine because i wasn't in for any publicity the the only one that i really looked at that i was probably going to leave for was about three or four years ago uh coach self called me from ku and their strength coach coach hootie had just left to a university of texas and and i was a finalist for that and um, they ended up going with um, a gentleman from the Sacramento Kings, uh, outstanding coach, and um, and uh, but it, it was one of those things that you know I didn't need to leave. I'm, I have family, I have athletes I love to train, I have a lot of coaches I like to train. You know, there there's always some things you wish for or possible. I don't want to say regret, but things that would have made your situation better. And um, but I was still to the point I. I love Wichita. I love Wichita State. I love Wichita State fans, and and so to me, I could retire here and and be an incredibly happy person. Good. Um, and you you mentioned KU, and <laughs> kind of kind of on the lighter side. I'm glad you didn't make that move because I know there is a. a I'm not going to use a harsh word. I'm going to say there's probably a distaste between Wichita State and KU people, and I don't think that move would be smiled upon, <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. Um, the, the two things that made it, well, three things made it very attractive. One, Bill Self, I think, is an incredible coach. I've talked to him in the past, and he's a really good person. Um, the proximity to Wichita to be able to see my grandkids was good, and it paid twice what I was making at Wichita State. So those were my three things, regardless how much I was shocked through and through. Um, they, they hit all the criteria for me with family and financially. So I wasn't going to be a sellout, but I was, <laughs> uh, you know, it's a great program. And I know when we played him, when Perry was there and I love Perry Ellis to death, um, I, we had to win because, you know, during the early days, Kate would come in and put a thumping on us and there was a lot of bad blood, but when we won that game. Uh, I swear until the clock ran out, my son and I were both nervous, even when we had a nice lead. And uh, until that buzzer went off, I, I thought, okay, when's their comeback going to hit? But our guys were so tough. And Coach Marshall, he had them just believing that they could accomplish the world. And uh, that was just – that was one game I'll remember for the rest of my life. And, and you know, and in talking about that, I always tell people this. Yes, KU thumped us around during the regular season games. But the one thing yeah. they can't take the one thing they can't take away from us, I always do this to them. I say two and oh. They say, What's two and oh? Yeah. I said NCAA tournament record, Wichita State yeah. two, <laughs> KU zero. The the battle of New Orleans and the last time we played them. And I mean, that was my consolation. We didn't make that deep run, but we beat KU. Yeah. And that's almost yeah. like a national championship for us. <laughs> Yeah, that, you, you could walk around anywhere in the Midwest, and the last time we played, we won. Mm-hmm. And uh, but but much respect, um, 
you know, for their program and, and what they've done over the years with Coach Williams himself. And, you know, and I was a fan when, you know, Darnell was there because they always had a Wichita, you know, vibe to them. And, and uh, so I, I have a ton of respect for them, but I, I just think at Wichita State at its, its best, um, can compete with anybody in the country. Right. It, now, the one thing that stands out to me about you is this right here. First of all, just listening to you, you're a very humble man. And the other thing that I'm so impressed about is here I am. I'm going on 55 next Tuesday to be exact. And so you're young. And <laughs> yeah, you got me by about three years. Okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> and you don't look it either. Okay. Let me say that. Well, but, I know I look 68. <laughs> no, you do not look that old. Okay. Now, the thing that was so impressed about me because I'm looking at these bodies that you have transformed. I still go to the gym and work out. I've shared some weight. I was as high as 350 at one time in my life. Then my last weight loss, I went from 290 down to 223. I'm back up around 250. But I'm like, I wouldn't mind going through a workout session just to get that extra push, even if it's one session, with Kerry Rosenbaum. So, what are some of the yeah. tips that you could pass along to someone, say, like me or whoever may be listening to this? What would you tell them to do? You know, the the biggest thing is that consistency. And, you know, as you lost the weight, it had to be a consistent process. And, you know, it's just like myself. I've put on weight over these years, and so it's not going to come off drastically. Everybody's looking for that quick fix. But, you know, as, as you get out of athletics, you know, the biggest reason I think majority of people left is to stay in good shape, to have a healthier life, to feel good about themselves and, and be able to play with your grandkids and different things. And, and so the biggest thing is you, you don't have to outwork everybody in the gym. You don't have to be what you were, but just be consistent. And if that's three days a week, total body, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, um, just doing a, a 20 minute circuit workout and finishing with some cardio, that's going to be good. But what people got to understand is so many people want to drop so much weight and drop it fast. And, you know, you see all the different diets out there. But the biggest thing, what you got to do when you're looking at losing weight is a calorie deficit. So, whatever you burn naturally throughout the day, through sleeping, through exercise, you've got to be taking in less than that to drop the weight. And so, Really, counting calories is such a big thing. I mean, there's people have had great results on different things from keto to um, all the intermediate fasting. Um, but the thing about it is it's watching your calories. And, and it's hard because, you know, I know when, when I went to Newman and played baseball, I could leave, get a large pizza and mm. eat that and mm. drop two pounds. And now I eat two slices and put on seven and you know, it's just, it's, it's harder, but you know, the, the biggest thing is consistency. And if you work out, because I had um, one trainer that hired me years ago, cause he wanted just a, his, in fact, his wife gave him uh, some sessions for a, a father's day president and he couldn't believe how sore he was and everything because he said, don't hold back. But the biggest thing is there are a hundred ways to do my job. So if you do something different than you're used to, you're going to get sore. But I can just say hit, make sure you hit every body part to get balanced, 
and flexibility because as we get older, our flexibility goes less and less. And Tell me about it. That's where we start getting sore knees, sore lower backs, and make sure you know that there's still stretching involved regardless what age you are. All right. And here is my last question for you. Uh-huh. Anybody that wants to go down the path you went down uh, to get started, if they want to be a trainer, it don't even have to be on a large scale, but if they want to be a trainer, what would you tell them to do from start to finish? Well, the first thing is that you have to have the passion for helping people. And because that passion shows when you're working with somebody or if you're just getting through the hour. The next thing, there's different health clubs requires things, colleges will require things, but the certifications will help you, they'll help you liability-wise. When you start training, I know myself, I used to make sure I did everything before I ever had somebody else try it out. I read a lot, I looked up different things, and then you formulate your own ideas. Don't. I had one assistant one year came in, and everything he did was with kettlebells. They were getting popular, and he did every sport, every Next year, no kettlebells, all Olympic lifts. And so my thing is, get your core programming and add some things from the outside, but experiment with yourself on how different things feel. Learn as much as you can. I've had a lot of people call me that are interested in being strength conditioning coaches, and I love to talk to them um, and give them that feel, but if you want to get into it in the college situation, your first step is normally going to be getting a degree in exercise science or something of that nature, and then try to get an internship uh, with the school or a graduate assistantship, and then go to the convention, meet as many people, because so many things are about contacts. Um, but for the normal trainer who's like here in Wichita, can be at the Y, can be at Apex, could be at Genesis. You know, the biggest thing, find out what makes you feel good. Make sure you have a passion. Understand that everybody has different needs, so they need to be trained accordingly. And at the end of the day, you got to care about what their needs are and what you're doing for them. It's not about you at all. It's about your client or the person you're training. And uh, if they're happy and they get the results, then you've done a great job. Well, Mr. Kerry Rosenboom, I want to thank you for your time today on the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. And I'm just blown away by your by your humility. And I like the fact that I can tell you're not afraid to share your faith. And that goes a long way in my book as well, too. So once again, I want to thank you for spending time today on the A-Train Sports Talk. Once again, my guest today on the A-Train Sports Talk podcast, former, it's hard to say that because it's been a stable, but former head and strength conditioning coach at WSU, Mr. Kerry Rosenbaum. Once again, thank you very much. Appreciate it. Have a great day. You too. God bless. Once again, Kerry Rosenbaum. Former, I, like I said, I just can't get used to saying that. Former head and strength conditioning coach at WSU, Kerry Rosenboom. Thank you for spending time today on the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. And guess what? We're just now building up a head of steam. So stay tuned. It is the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. Mm-hmm.
your host and conductor of the train, Anthony Smith, on a hump day Wednesday. That's just something I don't have in my vocabulary because to me, it's still not Friday. But we'll be back with some more. So keep it locked in on the A Train Sports Talk podcast. Host and conductor, Anthony Smith. podcast for sports and so much more thank you for listening to the a-train sports talk podcast with your host and conductor anthony smith if you would like to have your ad or sponsor a segment on here simply reach out to me at 316-553-2010 or you can simply email me that's a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com that's a dot train sports talk at gmail.com once again it's the a train sports talk podcast your host and conductor anthony smith train sports talk podcast with your host and conductor anthony smith grab your tickets get on board and enjoy the ride it's the a train sports talk podcast all aboard Welcome back to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, my next segment. And in the podcast I did a couple of segments, a couple of episodes ago, there's a big difference between segments and episodes. I remind myself that sometimes. Anyway, but in a couple of episodes back, I started out looking at some of the great HBCU football players of all time. And there was a list of 30, and I got started on the first few, but I never got back to finishing that. So basically what I'm going to do, I'm going to go back to that list, and I'm going to start all over from scratch. Now, whether I would do it all in this episode, because there is so much to get to today, even some NBA talk, but right now I want to get back to this greatest players in HBCU history. 30 best. So, like I said, I'm going to start back from scratch and 
if I have to do this today and then come back tomorrow and do it the next day and do it the next day, whatever it takes, I will complete this list. I guarantee I will complete this list because there's a lot of history involved in this. And you'd be surprised that when you hear this list of some of the 30 best HBCU players of all time, you'll also be shocked that some of these players also made a impact in the NFL and also paved their path to Canton, Ohio. That would be known as the Hall of Fame. So, looking at this list, Jerry Rice, Walter Payton, and the 30 best HBCU players of all time. Historically, black colleges and universities, HBCUs, have a long and storied history of iconic football. HBCUs have just as long an account of putting great football players in the NFL. Current players like Darius Leonard, South Carolina State. Tariq Cohen, North Carolina A&T, have impacted the league. Players like John Taylor, Alabama A&M, Steve McNair, Alcorn State, had Super Bowl moments to, to remember. HBCUs were often the only place that recruited black players to play football until the early 1980s. <laughs> that is especially true of quarterbacks. The McNair mentioned above went to Alcorn State because that was the only school to recruit him to play quarterback. During segregation, football players who were born in the South usually played for an HBCU because schools in the SEC, ACC, Big 8, and Southwest Conference, the Big 8 is now the 12, and the SWAC, are, and the SWC, Southwestern Conference, is part of the Big 12, AAC and Conference USA did not recruit black players. Despite being denied the opportunity to play at historically white colleges, players from historically black schools are some of the best players in college football history. Some like Walter Payton, Jerry Rice, Robert Brazil are among the best players in NFL history. So here's a ranking of the 30 best HBCU players of all time. Number 30, Ken Houston, safety, Prairie View A&M University. For most NFL players, the prime of their careers lasts anywhere from five to seven years. However, former Houston and Washington safety Ken Houston is the exception to that rule. Drafted in the ninth round of the 1967 AFL draft by the Houston Oilers, Houston was a pro bowler for 12 straight years. In 1971, Houston set a record for return touchdowns in one season with five, four interceptions, and one fumble recovery. That record would stand for 35 years until 2006 when Devin Hester had six returns for touchdowns, though none was on defense. Houston was either first or second team All-Pro from 1968 to 1979. Houston was traded to Washington in 1973 after six seasons with the Houston Oilers. Despite the consistency in Houston's career, Texas native is considered one of pro football's most underrated superstars. The narrative fits Houston's work-hard approach to the game. After a standout career at Dunbar High School in Lufkin, Texas, Houston received just two college offers, one from Bishop College and Prairie View A&M University. 
However, Bishop would rescind their request because they had not desegregated. Houston had an outstanding career at Prairie View, which began playing center, then switching to linebacker. It was there at linebacker where Houston would garner All-American honors. Those humble beginnings would mold Houston into one of the great players of his era. Number 29, Elvin Bethea. If we can pull that up. Elvin Bethea, defensive end, North Carolina A&T. Trenton, New Jersey native, Elvin Bethea began setting records while still in high school. As a track and field standout at Trenton Central High School, Bethea set the New Jersey state record in the shot put in 1964, a record that would stand some 30-plus years. As a member of the Houston Oilers, Bethea also set records. After being drafted in the third round in 1968, Bethea would play the most seasons in an Oilers jersey, 16, the most consecutive regular season games, 135, and the most regular season games in Oilers Titan history. Bethea and Jackson State alum Robert Brazil formed one of the most formidable pass rush tandems in the 1970s. Bethea ended his career with 105 sacks, leading the team in sacks six times. In addition, Bethea had double-digit sacks five times, including 16 in 1973 during a 1-13 season. Not bad for someone who began their career playing offense. When Bethea started his career at North Carolina A&T, he played both offensive guard and tackle, along with playing defensive end and linebacker. Bethea was a standout at all positions and was a three-time Pittsburgh Courier Black College Football All-American. Even after being drafted by the Oilers, Bethea began his career as an offensive lineman. But then Bethea made the switch, and the rest is history. Number 28, Rayfield Wright, offensive tackle, Fort Valley State University. There have been some pretty good basketball players turned football players, ask Antonio Gates. If Wright is not the best of them, he is close. Wright was a standout basketball player at the newly integrated Griffin High School in Griffin, Georgia. Ironically, Wright did not make his high school football team. Instead, Wright went to Fort Valley State on a basketball scholarship and was discovered by football coach Stan Lomax. Lomax made Wright quit his summer job at a mill to get ready for the football season. Because Wright was such a good athlete, Lomax put his diamond in the rough all over the field. Wright played free safety, defensive end, and even punter during his time at Fort Valley State. However, tight end is the position that he excelled at in college. The Cowboys drafted a man known as Big Cat in 1969. By 1971, however, Wright was languishing on the Cowboys' depth chart as a backup tight end. Fortunately for Wright, legendary head coach Tom Landry saw in Wright the same thing Lomax saw, an athlete who could play anywhere. Landry saw that Wright was agile, solid, and a hard worker. I looked at him with amazement because I never played tackle before in my life, right? Recall. I said, Coach, are you sure? He said, yeah, you'll make a good tackle. It turns out Landry was right. 
right? Help open holes for Dallas. It's his first 1,000-yard rusher on his way to six Pro Bowls and two Super Bowl, Super Bowl rings. Number 27, Larry Little. Larry Little, offensive guard with Joan Cookman University. Larry Little's name is synonymous with championships. Even after his playing days with the Dolphins, Little returned to his beloved alma mater, Bethune-Cookman, and won two MEAC titles, 1984 and 1988. In addition, three of his former players went on to be enshrined in the Hall of Fame. J.D. Hall, MEAC, Jeff Parker, Bethune-Cookman University, and Stevie Thomas, AFL, are Hall of Famers like their coach. Little's NFL career did not have a Hall of Fame beginning. First, Little went undrafted in 1967 and signed with the San Diego Chargers. Little chose San Diego after he after the Chargers offered him the most significant bonus. The bonus was $750. Little asked to be released after less than a week. Head coach Sid Gilman persuaded Little to stay, but Little did not play much. After middling on the Chargers depth chart for two seasons, Little was traded to the Dolphins. I didn't particularly like the trade, Little says now. The Dolphins weren't much then. However, what was in Miami was an opportunity to start. Little would be part of one of the best offensive lines in football history. But instead, Little was part of an offensive line that helped open holes for Larry Zonka, Mercury Morris, and Jim Kick. In 11 seasons with the Dolphins, Little won two Super Bowls and was a five-time All-Pro. Little's career is proof that it does not matter where you start, but where you finish. Number 26, Willie Totten, quarterback, Mississippi Valley State. Willie Satellite Totten is one of the many what-ifs in college football. Turn on the professional game, and quarterbacks from Patrick Mahomes to Tom Brady are playing no huddle, shotgun-based offenses, with three or four receivers in their base packages. Down in tiny Itabina, Mississippi, Willie Totten was the trigger man for head coach Archie Cooley's unique offense at Mississippi Valley State University. Cooley did not have a lot of size on his roster, but the Delta Devils had a lot of speed. So Cooley decided to do something that has been a hallmark of the modern game putting that speed in space to create one-on-one matchups. In 1984, Cooley told Totten that he could call the plays to the line of scrimmage. That change made Totten and his primary receiver, Jerry Rice, record-setting players at the FCS Division I AA level. In that 1984 season, the Delta Devils scored 59 points per game and Totten threw for a single record single season record of 58 touchdowns. The Delta Devils will make their only Division I AA playoff appearance that season. When Totten was done at Mississippi Valley State, he was second all-time in career passing yards, 12,711 yards and single season passing yards, 4,557 yards and first all-time in touchdown passes 139. Totten threw for over 530 yards five times in his career, including 599 
a including a 599-yard game against Prairie View. After Totten's playing days were, were over, he would ca- he would coach and currently coaches quarterbacks at Mississippi Valley State University. Number 25, Roosevelt Brown. Roosevelt, Rosie Brown, offensive tackle, Morgan State University. Do not let the flowery nickname fool you. Roosevelt Brown was one of the most feared offensive linemen of his day. To say Brown had an exciting journey before, during, before, during, and after his playing days is an understatement. Initially, Brown's parents did not want him to play football. Brown played in the high school band. <laughs> it sounds like me. After his brother died while playing football. Finally, Jefferson High School football coach Robert W. Smith convinced Brown to come out for football. As the story goes, the band director wanted to fight the football coach because Brown was an accomplished trumpet player. Though he began playing football without his father's knowledge, Brown was good enough to earn a scholarship to Morgan State University. In 1952, Brown was a Pittsburgh Courier All-American. Tom Brady's draft story is legendary, but even he was not drafted in the 27th round. After nine Pro Bowls, six first-team All-Pro selections in 13 seasons, it is easy to see why Brown is considered the most significant draft steal in NFL history. Most impressive is that Brown missed just four games in 13 seasons. He was an anchor of an offensive line that opened holes for Frank Gifford and Alex Webster on their way to the 1956 NFL championship so what i'm going to do right here i'm going to go ahead and pause and take a break and there is plenty more to come so i want you to stay tuned because this train is just now building up here to steam a train sports talk podcast your host and conductor anthony smith give me a rundown of 30 of the greatest all-time HBCU football players. Train Sports Talk Podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. Grab your tickets, get on board, and enjoy the ride. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. All aboard! Welcome back to the A-Train Sports 
Talk Podcast. Ooh, I don't know where that echo came from. Maybe my hands are bigger than what I thought. I'm turning two buttons up at the same time. I did not want that echo. Glad I got that figured out, though. I should never sound like this. That's a no-no. Anyway, <coughs> I'm just having fun on a Wednesday evening. Afternoon. Thank you. Afternoon. Afternoon. So we started in on this list, started from scratch. The 30 best HBCU football players of all time. And I gave you first five, starting from 30. Worked my way to 25. So now, coming in at number 24. I'm going to work this on down to number 20. And then we'll come back tomorrow and do more of the same thing. Because I have some NBA talk coming up in my next segment with my partner, Jordan. So, looking forward to that next segment. But I want to go ahead and do this one right quick. And, no, well, not right quick, but give me some more names. So, here we're looking at Willie Brown. Cornerback. Grambling State University. There are a few players more connected to a franchise than Willie Brown is with the Raiders. Not just because Brown spent the vast majority of his career in the silver and black as a player, coach, and executive. Not even because of Brown's iconic NFL films clip seemingly running toward the camera on a then-record 75-yard touch, 75-yard interception return for a touchdown. What makes Willie Brown such an iconic Raider is his journey to the NFL. Brown has the perfect Raider Brown was the perfect Raider because he was a diamond in the rough. The Raiders were often considered the land of misfit toys in many ways. After a stellar career at Grambling State under legendary coach Eddie Robinson, Brown went undrafted in 1963. Brown signed with the Oilers but was cut during training camp. Broncos signed Brown where he played for three seasons. Denver traded Brown to the Raiders in 1967, and he spent 12 years playing and another 10 years as a coach and 24 years as a as director of staff development. The Wazoo, the Yazoo City, Mississippi native, had 54 interceptions in his 15-year NFL career. Brown was a four-time Pro Bowler and a five-time AFL All-Star. Brown is part of the AFL's all-time team, the NFL's 1970s all-decade team, and the NFL's 100th anniversary all-time team. Next, Winston Hill, offensive tackle, Texas Southern. It is one thing to do something for a long time. Doing something well for a long time is entirely different altogether. Offensive tackle Winston Hill not only played tackle 14 seasons in the AFL, but he was also one of the best while he played. Every accolade Hill had during his during and after his career was hard earned. A Texas native, Hill played high school tennis, but at six foot four, football would come calling. It did not take Hill long to pick up the sport garnering all American honors at Texas Southern before getting drafted by Baltimore. Instead of staying with the Colts, 
instead of staying with the NFL coach, Hill decides to sign with the AFL New York Jets. Hill protected legendary quarterback Joe Namath in open holes for Emerson Boozer, Matt Snell, and John Riggins. During his 14 seasons, all but one for the Jets, Hill started an incredible 174 consecutive games, 10th all-time. Hill was part of the 1968 Jet squad, which upset John Unitas and the Baltimore Colts in Super Bowl III. Hill was a three-time All-AFL selection, four-time All-AFL All-Star, four-time Pro Bowl selection, and member of the Jets' Ring of Honor. Hill was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2020. Number 22, Willie Davis, defensive end, Grambling State. Davis spent part of the Grambling State. Davis was part of the Grambling State machine that ran from the mid-1950s until the 1970s. Davis was one of the many players legendary head coach Eddie Robinson sent to the NFL in the heyday of HBCU football. Davis was drafted in the 15th round by the Cleveland Browns in 1956. Davis did not begin his career until 1958 after serving in the military. One thing about being versatile, it can be difficult for coaches to find a specific place for a player. Unfortunately, this is the situation Davis found himself in during his time with the Browns. Paul Brown tried every position on offense and defense, but could not find a role for Davis. However, Vince Lombardi saw Davis's defensive potential and traded for him in 1960. The move to Green Bay ended up being the best thing for Davis's career. Although, however, sacks were not a statistic until 1982, the Professional Football Researchers Association credited Davis with over 100 career sacks. Davis said of himself, I would think I would have to be the team's all-time leader in sacks. I played for 10 years, and I averaged in the teens in sacks for those 10 years. I had 25 one season. Davis also owns the Packers record for the most fumble recoveries with 21. As a team leader, Davis would volunteer to sit with players who had never played on an integrated team. Fathering Vince Lombardi's edict of treating everyone equally, no matter their race. Number 21, Claude Humphrey, defensive end, Tennessee State University. Claude Humphrey might not be a household name among more notable legends of his day, but the Tennessee State All-American is a pioneer at the defensive end. Had Humphrey been recruited out of high school or drafted in today's game, he'd be considered an edge rusher. Humphrey was one of the first wide nine pass rushers in NFL history, where his job almost exclusively was to get to the quarterback. (laughs) Most defensive ends of his day got to the quarterback trying to hit the running back. Humphrey was one of the first defensive ends with an array of pass rush moves. Bruce Smith, Reggie White, and Michael Strahan are the result of Humphrey's innovation at the position. Initially an offensive tackle, Humphrey switched positions after his freshman year at Tennessee State. The switch turned out to be the right decision. Humphrey ended his career at Tennessee State as their all-time leader in sacks and was a three-time All-American, 
Humphrey was drafted third by the Atlanta Falcons in 1969, where he would spend nearly a decade. Humphrey unofficially finished his career with 125.5 sacks, including 14.5 in 1980 to help the Philadelphia Eagles reach the Super Bowl. Humphrey is in the Tennessee State Hall of Fame, the Atlanta Falcons Ring of Honor, and the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Number 20, a name that you should all remember from his days in the 80s under Air Corral. Charlie Jorner, wide receiver, kick returner, Grambling State. For legendary receiver, Jerry Rice was famous for his longevity. Charlie Jorner had the longest career of any wide receiver in NFL history. Jorner spent 18 seasons with the Cincinnati Bengals, Houston Oilers, in San Diego Chargers. When Jordan retired in, the 19, in, in 1986, he was the all-time leader in receptions, receiving yards, and games played by a wide receiver. Jordan made three Pro Bowls, was a first-team All-Pro 1970, and is in the Chargers Hall of Fame. Jordan played with legendary Grambling quarterback James Shaq Harris during his college career. While at Grambling, Jordan was a four-time SWAC conference champion Winning the 1967 Black National title, Jorner gained 2,066 yards at Grambling and was a three-time all-conference selection. After a stellar career at Grambling, Jorner was a fourth-round draft pick in 1969 by the Houston Oilers. Jorner spent the first seven seasons of his career between the Oilers and Cincinnati Bengals. When he joined the San Diego Chargers, <clears throat> Don Coryell's spread offense is when Jorner hit his stride. Along fellow Hall of Famers Dan Fouts and Kellen Winslow, Jorner helped the Chargers reach the AFC title game in 1980 and 1981. Jorner would coach after retirement for the Chargers, Bills, and Chiefs. In 1996, Jorner was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame and was inducted into the Black College Football Hall of Fame in 2013. So there you have that list right there all the way from 30 down to 20. What I'm about to do now is I'm about to pause and take another break because I am going to switch gears and talk a little NBA. In particular, one team who has a star player that is wanting to be traded out. But in the end, they could be stuck with their dynamic duo still. Wonder who that is? Find out next on the other side of this break. It is the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. Be right back after this message. Thank you. 
It is the A Train Sports Talk Podcast, your podcast for sports and so much more. Thank you for listening to the A Train Sports Talk Podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. If you would like to have your ad or sponsor a segment on here, simply reach out to me at 316-553-2010 or you can simply email me. That's a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com. That's a.trainsportstalk at gmail.com. Once again, it's the A Train Sports Talk Podcast. Your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast with your host and conductor, Anthony Smith. Grab your tickets, get on board, and enjoy the ride. It's the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast. All aboard! Welcome back to the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, your host and conductor. May I add your favorite host and conductor, your sports guy, getting you the news that you want to hear and bringing the interviews as well, too. It's all good on a Wednesday. Well, there is one team whose player has demanded a trade. But instead of trading them, like they still may be stuck with their dynamic duo. And that is the vibe right now in Brooklyn. I'm not going to so much say that Kevin Durant demanded a trade, but he requested a trade. But this report coming off of Bleacher Report, Winhorst, the vibe is Nets are prepared to keep Kevin Durant Kyrie Irving. The vibe around the Brooklyn Nets reportedly suggests the front office may be prepared to keep both Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving despite the offseason trade rumors. ESPN's Brian Windhorst reported the update Wednesday on Get Up saying the Nets have yet to field the type of offers they'd want to blow up their roster. The market for Durant has not been as lucrative as the Nets were hoping, and the market for Kyrie is very thin. It's essentially the Lakers, and the trade offer isn't great. Isn't that great, Winhor said. Durant's business manager, Rich Kleiman, confirmed to ESPN's Adrian Wojnarowski in late June that 12-time All-Star had requested a trade out of Brooklyn. Any hope of a clean break and a rapid roster reconstruction for the Nets has faded over the past couple of weeks, though. Asking price is a major factor in the sluggish talks. Shams Sharania of Stadium 
of The Athletic reported last week on the Pat McAfee show via CBS Sports, Jasmine Wimbish, that the Nets are seeking all-star type players and a boatload of draft picks. And I am going to put a pin right there because uh, if you remember, Kevin Durant, his two options were Miami and Phoenix. Mind you, Devin Booker just signed a lucrative deal. And there are some parts I know that they're not going to part ways with just for one player. And what I want to do, I want to bring my partner in here. He's been on here a few times. His name is Jordan. We're trying to get him on here. And hopefully make some sense of this. Jordan, what's going on, my man? Not much. How are you? I'm doing just fine, and you are on a live mic right now as we talk. Because I know, I know I could do you like this. Ladies and gentlemen, let me give this young man his proper intro. He's been on the A-Train Sports Talk a few times. We've had some glitches. I think those glitches have been worked out. So by the time this podcast is published, it's going to have at least 50 listeners on it because he's going to listen to it first before he distributes it. He's a young man. He's aspiring to do great things. And I believe if he stays humble as he is, he will achieve greatness. He is sat at the table with greatness. Uh, can I name one name at least for sure? Mike Kennedy, the voice of the Shockers. He sat at the table with him. And there's been some other places he's gone, but he's a very knowledgeable young man. I already sent him the link. Is what we're talking about, which is this Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, Brooklyn Nets situation. So welcome aboard the A-Train Sports Talk Podcast, my friend and my newly adopted little brother, Jordan DeAndre Manning. Give him those applause. That's what I'm talking about. What's going on, little man? Not much. How are you? Just I know you weren't expecting all that leading. You just expecting a phone call. Let's just talk about this and let's get it over with, right? Not at all. But you know, there's an old saying, and you know, me being a Baptist boy, it's always said sometimes the man that gets a long intro doesn't deserve it, and the one that deserves it doesn't get it. And knowing who you are and knowing how knowledgeable you are. You deserve the long intro. So I appreciate that. <laughs> so I kind of got started on this story here with the Brooklyn Nets. And I stopped at this part right here. It says, any hope of a clean break and a rapid roster reconstruction for the Nets has faded over the past couple of weeks. And the main factor is their asking price. Mm-hmm. So... We know that Durant, when he first requested his trade, his his preferred spots was Miami, Phoenix. Well, Phoenix just signed Devin Booker to a nice Supermax. And I know for a fact that, let's just say, hypotheticals. 
take Kevin Durant out of the situation. One piece that would probably make Brooklyn click would be, let's say, a tr- uh, a swap out. Kyrie for CP3. And we know Kyrie can ball out. But from a leadership and stability standpoint, CP3 would be your best bet. And Brooklyn would probably have a best shot at making the finals run in under those headings. Of course, we still don't know what the verdict is going to be on Ben Simmons. So, I'm pretty sure you have been paying close attention to the trade market, what's going on. What is the holdup in Brooklyn, and what's the chances you see Kyrie and Kevin Durant starting for Brooklyn at the beginning of this season? I mean, honestly, I mean, like you said, um, they're just trying to find the right trade opportunity, you know, what team has the best offer, you know, to for them to trade for Kyrie and Kevin Durant and stuff like that. Cause you know, both players aren't cheap. They're not cheap players at all. Um, so you're going to have to give up several players, draft picks, money. You're going to have to give up, you know, a good amount of pieces to get those guys. I mean, you've seen, you saw how, what um, Utah is getting for Rudy Gobert. Exactly. They traded traded him to um, Minnesota Timberwolves, right. And stuff. So you saw how they have to give up like five or six guys, a bunch of draft picks and other benefits just for one player. So just to see that example right there, I mean, yeah, you know, Rudy Gobert is probably one of the best defense, best defensive guys in the game right now. But, you know, you're talking about Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving. So it's like you're going to have to give up some pieces. You're mm-hmm. going to have to give up some, some, some major, major points. And, you know, like how you said, Durant's looking at, you know, Phoenix or Miami or whoever. Whoever gets them, they're going to have to give up some pieces. But at the same time, I can see it to where if, if Brooklyn can't find the right pieces or find the right trade, that looks they'll probably have both those guys back in Brooklyn. Right. So now I'm going to hold my trump card because I heard something yesterday. And it, it was like jaw dropping. But looking more at this report right here, though, now it says between those demands and a limited number of potential suitors, it could prove difficult to move the rent over the summer, and there is no time pressure to change that because he's under contract through 2025-2026 as part of a four-year, ooh, you ready for this one? $194.2 million deal. So the question is whether Durant, Irving, and Ben Simmons could form a successful core next season, which saw the team eliminated in the first round of the playoffs before Simmons could make his team debut, followed by his offseason uncertainty. Now, here's what they have on paper. They have a trio combined with a depth of group that includes Joe Harris, who's also been mentioned in trade speculation, Royce O'Neal, Seth Curry, and Cam Thomas, among others, which saying this team actually has the talent to seriously contend for the Eastern Conference Final. But here's another question. If Kyrie and Kevin Durant are on the roster opening season, 
Could Kevin Durant possibly pull a James Harden and demand a in-season trade? Because to me, Kevin Durant it does not seem to me as if he's wound that way. I mean, if it's evident that there's not going to be a trade, at the end of the day, he wants to just play ball. And I can't see him pulling no in-season shenanigans like James Harden. I think him and James Harden are wound too entirely different than each other. And I think once the ball is thrown up, the lights are on, and that jump ball is in, in effect to start the season, I think Kevin Durant is more focused on making it through that season and looking for his next trade during the season because I don't think he likes those distractions. How do you feel about that? I mean, I agree. I don't think he's that type of guy. But then also we never know. You know, something could have happened to where he's like, okay, if we can't get it now, I'm going to make it, make y'all give me a reason. You never know. Um, and stuff like that. So, is you know, as far as with that, it's going to be, it's going to be interesting to see. Um, and, you know, even with Kyrie, you know, another spot a lot of people think about that, you know, he's going to end up going to is the Lakers. They think they're going to do a signing. They're going to do a trade for him for Westbrook or, you know, or somebody like that. But that might be a good thing for Westbrook. Really? But it's like, is Brooklyn interested in him like that? You know, we don't really know how interested Brooklyn is with uh, Westbrook. Or, you know, I've heard some, you know, rumors that it'll be like a three-team trade. You know, they've mentioned, you know, San Antonio in the mix. Um, It's part of like that three-team trade. You know, there's others, but, you know, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, kind of how the rest of the, free agency plays out i mean you we've all seen some big time moves happen and stuff like that throughout the nba already this offseason you know me being a clippers fan you know we we just signed john wall um yeah i'm excited i'm excited about that trade because um you know we need you know a type of guy like that you know not saying reggie jackson isn't a point guard because I feel like he definitely can run the point, but I feel like he's more of a, of a two guard scoring threat more than, than, you know, a distributor. And, you know, they're, 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 they're saying it now, you know, once we sign John wall, you know, if we can get a healthy John wall, Kawhi Leonard's going to be back. You know, he's my favorite player in the league, a, a healthy Kawhi, uh, um, a healthy, health in a healthy roster, you know, they can definitely make a push for the finals. Now, are you ready for this jaw dropper? Yeah. So I'm on my way to work yesterday, and I'm listening to The Odd Couple with Chris Broussard and Rob. Pa- no, not Rob. He's on vacation. He's from Salon. And now rumor has it that Steph. Curry has actually reached out to Kevin Durant about coming back to Golden State. Mm-hmm. Now, imagine that. Yeah, I've 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 heard those rumors too um, about him possibly going back. But the question is, like, I've always you know I've discussed this with some friends of mine and stuff. If that ever happened, would he get more backlash? going back to them now because they just won a championship or would or would when he left OKC to go to them the first time would he would 
would he not, you know, get that much backlash then? Because because you know how people was, you know, going at it when he left the when he left to go there the first time. Now, obviously, you know, the Warriors are a totally different team. Yeah, they've lost a couple of their role players, you know, to trades and free agency, you know, recently, you know, Otto Porter just signed with uh with Toronto for a couple right. of years. Um, if Durant was to go back this time around, you know, that's another thing. Who's Golden State gonna have to give up to get him? Right. Um, stuff. But because I think same, like, is he gonna get is he gonna get more criticized and attacked this time around if he did decide to go back? And, and see, that's gonna be a twofold thing because I mean, if he does go back, it's because Steph asked him back. And then here's where it really gets murky because if he goes back knowing that Steph reached out to him. What does that do for Steph's legacy? Because he's already proven, hey, I can win with Durant. I can win without Durant. But the narrative that was painted was as, you know, as teams are gearing up to take a run at knocking you off your throne, at the same time, you can't be, you can't rest on your laurels. And with Steph getting older, if you make another run for the finals, you don't want to make this run hard. You want to make it as easy as possible. So what would that do about Steph's legacy? I mean, really, does he have anything to prove? I mean, if if they get a Durant, then now he has five rings, and that pushes him above LeBron James. Now, you won't hear Steph talking about none of this personally, but think about it. Kevin Durant goes back. They win a championship. Now, who's the finals MVP? Is it Kevin Durant or is it Steph Curry? And that's something that I think Steph would probably take personal although he might not say it but like yeah i want to win this mvp to show that not only did we have the rent but i'm the mvp of the finals so there's a whole lot to take into place if a move like that is made but at the end of the day what are teams willing to give up because if teams aren't willing to give up anything steph i'm sorry durant just might be stuck in brooklyn along with Kyrie. and then how do you look at a team like Brooklyn, if that be the case, with the parts that they have around them, such as they say, uh, what was that name again? What was those names I gave you? Uh, uh, Seth Curry, and he's not a shabby player. I mean, it always intrigues me how Philadelphia. All right, here, here are some of the players: Joe Harris, Royce O'Neal, Seth Curry, Cam Thomas. I mean, with those players around their core, which would be Ben Simmons, Kyrie Irving. And Durant, you have some pretty nice pieces for a team that can make a conference, make a deep run in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. I can guarantee you this, they wouldn't get swept in the first round. No. Not at all. Not at all. And, you know, like you said, who what's going to stay willing to give up, you know, for him? And there's talks of, you know, they would be like, you know, Brooklyn would probably want like a Jordan Poole, you know, you know, um, maybe Looney's been in the Kavon Looney's been in the talks. You've talked about, you know, even James Wiseman off the bench or, you know, Moody or Kaminga. Um, there's even talks of even them talking about, you know, they would probably want with Andrew Wiggins. You saw how good he played for them yeah. this season in the finals and stuff like that. So, you know, Golden State would definitely lose a lot of pieces of that core that just won the finals. For Kevin Durant, they're not just going to be like, "Oh, we'll give you two draft picks or 
player to now. Brooklyn's going to go hardcore into who they want, you know, to give up these guys. But like, you know, like we said earlier, if they can't find the right, the right, you know, pieces, the right trade opportunity, looks like they're going to be having both guys back at the start of the season. So I'm going to go on record and I'm going to say it like this. And it may be a pretty high percentage, but I'm going to say there is a 75% chance that we're going to see Kyrie and Kevin Durant in the Brooklyn uniform opening day. And we'll also get to see the debut of Ben Simmons in the Nets uniform. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, we keep dangling Kyrie for Russell Westbrook and if you look at Russell Westbrook's career, it hasn't really been all that bad. As a matter of fact, when you go back to Oklahoma City days, let's just go back to that Oklahoma City trio. Durant, Westbrook, Harden. Uh, James Harden back then is the same James Harden we know today. He is going to give you some stats for the regular season that can last from here until the time he dies and go into the Basketball Hall of Fame. But the one thing that sticks out like a sore thumb, he's a magician. Mm-hmm. During playoff times, he disappears. If you look at those playoff runs that the Thunder made when they had that trio, of the three, the two that always showed up playoff time was Durant, Westbrook. Now, why do I make that correlation? Because of this right here. If they're really serious about a trade between Westbrook and Irving, I'm pretty sure the Lakers are going to have to deal with the same thing that Brooklyn has had to deal with. Yep. Availability. Russell Westbrook, his availability outside of injuries is spot on 100%. Kyrie, he is taking the moniker of one, oh, my God. Who was that player came out of Marshall? Uh, Randy Moss. I'll play when I want to. Anytime a player can just disappear and not tell coaches or his teammates of his whereabouts, that lets you know there's an issue there. So availability to me is everything. I don't care how good you are on the court. The narrative with Kyrie Irving is when he's on the court, and that underline that keyword, when. Compared to Westbrook, and yes, Westbrook has his flaws on the court, but he's available. When you need him, he's there. And at the end of the day, I want somebody on my team that I know I can trust, someone I know will be there. Someone I ain't got to wonder, well, they're here for two days and they're going to be gone for five. What's going on? They haven't said nothing. They haven't checked in. Uh, I want somebody who knows the shape of the world, not someone that thinks it's flat. <laughs> I want someone whose talent is going to be on display every night. Can we just find somebody that will play an 82-game season, barring injuries? I think Greg Popovich messed us up. Mm-hmm. That's my rant, but seriously. <laughs> seriously, though, when you think about it, I want a player that's going to be available night in, night out. I want somebody that I can go to war with. 
You may be my best friend, but I feel like you're leaving me out to hang. And I think Kevin Durant really needs to sit down and have that talk with Kyrie Irving. Because it's apparent Kyrie, if when it's all said done, he really don't even respect the coach. Then again exactly. on days, who does? <laughs> Go ahead, man. Go ahead. No, nah, I'm like I said, you know, that's in my I mean, obviously, you know, Kyrie is one one heck of a player. I mean, we've seen it happen. He's a champion, you know, and stuff like that. But would Kyrie be somebody that in the long run you can trust? You know, play all your cards with and uh you know, for for the long run, honestly. Like who would you like who would you rather trust more? Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving? Oh, Kevin Durant, hands down. Outside of the injuries, I know Kevin wants to just play ball. Yes. Yep, exactly. I agree. And that's, you know, that's why, you know, I've told mentioned to some people before, like I said, you know, no knock against Kyrie, you know, you have him on your team, you know, that, that, that's a plus, but in the long run, when you think about it, is he somebody that you can trust long-term? And I think, right. And stuff like that. And that, you know, we've seen, we've seen it to where he's, Showing strides of, oh, is he trustworthy? Oh, can he do this? Oh, can he do that? You know, and all of that. So that the I feel like that also plays into big roles also as far as with um uh with teams being interested in him and stuff like that too, because you know, before we signed John Wall, there was top people had mentioned, oh, you know, Kyrie should go to the Clippers. And, you know, me being a Clippers fan, you know, I mean, also I'm a Spurs fan also. You know, I'll put that out there, too. I'm a San Antonio Spurs guy, too. But we're in rebuilding mode right now. We're we're, That's a whole other topic. We're we're in rebuilding mode. So, but, you know, I also got the Clippers because my favorite player, Kawhi Leonard, plays for them. Um, You know, they're talking about, oh, Kyrie can join PG and Kawhi. I'm like, "Uh, I, I, I I wasn't a fan of that. You know, that, that, that rumor, but, you know, once there was rumors of, oh, you know, they was going to do a, a, a buyout with John Wall's contract, and then, you know, he was going to sign with us, I was like, okay, I like this, I like this pick, I like this pickup, you know, and like I said, the Clippers, they, they re-signed Batum, they re-signed uh, Zubak, I think one thing that they need is a backup big. Yeah. To... You know, they need a backup four and a five because they're pretty much stacked at the two guard and the three guard uh, position and stuff and uh, and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, like I said, I'm just – I'm excited to see that team. Like I mentioned, if they stay healthy, they've already been talked about as, as a threat in the West, a team that can compete with Golden State and even potentially beat Golden State to get to the finals. And, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the year that Kawhi got hurt, I truly, genuinely feel that the way that the Clippers was rolling and, uh, and stuff like that, if Kawhi wouldn't have got hurt, they probably would have won the finals that year. 
Let me. I feel like they. I feel like they could have. I feel like they could have got past Phoenix in six or seven, and then I feel like it would be a six seven game series again with uh Milwaukee with Milwaukee. And yeah. So I mean, I, I I agree to a certain extent, but at the at the end of the day, I would say his luck ran out. Y'all still had mm-hmm. Doc Rivers as a coach. And outside of his little streak in Boston with his big three, yep. he really hasn't shown me much when it comes to the playoffs here lately. I mean, you look at what's going on in Philadelphia. Of course, they had the Ben Simmons distraction. Of course, you see how his record went with uh, the Clippers. And this is yep. prior to the meltdown between CP3 and uh, what's the kid out of OU that played for so long there? What was his name? He's in Brooklyn now. Always dunking on everybody. What's that guy's name? It, it'll mm-hmm. come to him. Come on, you a Clippers guy. Yeah. Griffin, Blake Griffin. Griffin. Right. Yep. Before mm-hmm. that demise happened and they end up going their way. I mean, his, his track record outside of having Garnett, Paul Pierce, Ray Allen, he hasn't gotten his teams very far, or he may get them to the doorstep and the door slams in their face. It's something that Doc Rivers isn't doing. So even though I do agree with you to a certain extent, if they would have had a healthy Kawhi Leonard at the same time, there's something that I don't trust about Doc Rivers, and he's a lot of times he comes across as nonchalant. And with that being said, you wonder how long it's going to be before he gets ran out of Philadelphia. Yeah. But, but I, I think but even with the, but even, you know, with, uh, the Clippers, you know, I love, I, I, I respect Ty Lue and what he's done. Right. Now that you I will say he's, he's a, uh, I like his coaching style. You know how I like how he doesn't panic, you know, when things are going crazy, he doesn't panic. He's like, all right, let's call a timeout real quick. Let's, you know, make the right adjustments and, no, I think they said this past season the Clippers had the most comeback wins from like a certain point deficit, you know, all season long and stuff like that. Um and stuff. So, you know, Tyler, he's a he's a great fit um for for the Clippers, you know, like I said, he's done a really good job since he's taken the helm as the head coach. You know, obviously he has championship experience, you know, he was LeBron's coach in Cleveland when they won. Um and and I just feel like you know with his type of uh, character and stuff, I feel like that can help them you know get to the get to the Western Conference Finals and eventually NBA Finals because I like I, I I believe the Clippers have what it takes. Look good. We got. I'm gonna have to cut the show. We got 30 seconds. That's why the music is bad enough in the background. But I tell you what, DeAndre, we're gonna talk this out tomorrow if you got some time, and we're gonna talk some TBT. All right. Oh, most definitely. It's almost here. Yep. So we got less than 10 seconds. So it's the A-Train Sports Talk podcast. We're getting out of here, but we'll be back tomorrow with a lot more. So see you tomorrow.